Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Inside story on the teams, suppliers, and circuits. Inside. As it turns out, heaven really is a place on earth. It just happens to lie in Stuttgart, Germany. Hello, everyone. I'm Shay Adam from IMSA Radio and RadioLeMond.com, part of the RSL network of channels, standing in the Porsche Museum. Now, for anyone who knows me, if you cut me open, there is a Porsche crest on the inside. So, coming to a place like this has a little bit of extra meaning. It really is the source of history as far as all things Porsche are concerned. And there are more cars in here that could tell a story than just about any number of people in the paddock. Going to be taking you through the museum today for a little bit of a Christmas surprise. And, but it won't just be my voice you have to listen to for the next little while. Joining me, Dave Engelman from Porsche Motorsports North America. We're in the museum. We are staring at some of the cars from behind the glass wall, or just like to say, standing in the cafeteria area. We don't really know what lies upstairs yet. We, we've got a good idea of what's there, but we don't know what we're going to see. Are you feeling like a kid on Christmas morning? The goosebumps never go away. Once I get here, just even coming through the center of town just gets me all excited. And it's, you don't hear it necessarily in my voice, but it's an amazing place to be. And it's, it's definitely like Mecca. Even the parking garage for this place. I mean, we pull in, we go underground, we take a ticket, and then all of a sudden there's all these new cars surrounding us. You know where you are when you come to Stuttgart because of all the Mercedes, but more so because of all the new Porsches. And it's part of the, let's say, the candy or, or even the Kool-Aid, if you will, when you pull <laughs> in the parking deck. It's it's strategically placed. Sometimes you see a, even a tractor or you see some race car that you just don't expect to see just parked in a normal spot. It's uh, all designed to get you excited before you even get inside. And it works. Uh, Come off the elevator and we see straight away the museum shop, which is where we'll be finishing the tour because I need to go get Christmas presents, let's be honest. Um, But when we walk in, there's this little cafe area across from the ticket counter and then this wall of glass that behind it, some of the most beautiful cars are hiding, including one that's very near and dear to us because we just saw it, what, two months ago on track. It feels like yesterday. So, yeah, the 911 RSR done up in Coca-Cola colors, the 912. It's um, You saw it just before it went away, and now you see it back in its permanent home. And it will live here because it's a championship-winning car, so it's earned that right to permanently be in the museum whether or not it's on display. Exactly. It's part of the collection now. All of our winning championship-winning cars come back home. There's another car that definitely catches the eye, the Marlboro Indy car that's up on a lift. Uh, I know that Patrick Long would saw off a limb to be able to drive that car. But, I mean, there's a, a full range. We've got a GT1 in front of us. We've got a Cayenne with the doors that are invisible, actually, so that you can see through them. What, are, what should we expect from the museum? Um, I think we should save the surprises for when we get upstairs, but I think what you see here now is a great example of what lays ahead of us or lies ahead of us. The amazing collection and the amazing range of vehicles from a prototype Cayenne through a GT1 98 through, which is the streetcar by the way, it's the only streetcar GT1 for 98 that there is, through the Elaine Prost um, Formula One car, through just everything, like I said. It's an amazing display and... um, there are a ton of surprises, and it and runs the full gamut of what you could expect from, from Porsche. Well, we do have to go upstairs. We have to go up the escalator that goes through the clouds, goes up toward the heavens. But this building, it, it's not a terribly old thing in itself, and it is an architectural uh, design that catches the eye. How many times have you been to this museum now? Um, a few. A few. A few. Um, it's 10 years old. So they just celebrated her 10th anniversary, and um, it still looks brand new, and the design emulates or other buildings now that we've done emulates the design of this building so our Porsche centers in the United States certainly our home in Porsche Porsche home in Atlanta emulates this and you can tell exactly what it is the dealership is across the street the factory is just on the other side of the cross street uh, where all the 911s and sports cars are created so it's um yeah it's an amazing place I can't come here enough we are in the beating heart of Porsche land so we've waited long enough let's get on the escalator let's go
Alrighty, so we come off the escalator, and the first thing that we see, um, did we get lost? Did we wind up in some sort of a horse museum? Because this looks like a horseless carriage, Dave. This doesn't look like a car. Welcome to the late 1800s. <laughs> so it was a time-traveling escalator. Okay, That's okay, exactly I'm on board. That's exactly what it is. Um, it's a long escalator, and right back back a century and a little bit ago. So uh, <laughs> right back to the first young Dr. Porsche, if you will. And uh, one of the very first things that he touched uh, was found in a museum not that long ago. Well, I found it in a barn, actually, not that long ago, before it wound up here in the museum. And um, there's a piece scratched in a loner chassis, and it's been determined that it's one of the very early projects of Dr. Porsche with the loner, loner Automotive Company. So just to give you an idea of what we're actually looking at, it's almost like a wooden sleigh at the front. If you picture a sleigh bed, that's what the front of this looks like. There's a little steering wheel and a gauge on what would be, I guess, considered a dashboard. Large wooden circular wheels with, uh, they look like um, pirate ship steering wheels almost, except with the spokes coming out at each end. But then these large compression springs that you saw in carriages of the time, made out of some sort of iron, I would imagine, some sort of metal, and then an engine in the back. So this was actually powered not by horse, but by man. And the engine actually, and what kind of makes it super interesting in today's uh, vernacular, is the fact it was electric. So it wasn't gasoline-driven. It was one of the first things he worked on was an electric uh, mobile. So it's things come circular or full circle, if yeah. you will. Um, but yeah, so electric power back in 1898 just showing even more so the innovation of Porsche. Now, this car, which is called the Egger Loner C2 Phaeton, so it's got quite the mouthful of a name, but bits of plastic on it right now to replicate what the seats would have looked like with lights on the side. So this could actually carry a significant amount of people, but the sheer fact that the thing that we're looking at was an electric engine back before many people had electricity is that in itself says a lot exactly so um dr porsche actually wired his home in what was or what is now austria um in the late 1800s long before there was electric in let's say most of the factories or any place around he was way ahead of his time when it came to electricity and uh, then he went off to university and you know i kind of say the rest is history but uh his early projects like this and other loaner porsches that he worked on uh he invented the first hybrid between a gasoline and electric car so um you can definitely see right from the very beginning where his direction was going. Now, electric kind of fizzled out, if you will, from a, from a power standpoint. Gasoline and the distribution of gasoline became the, and then diesel became the prominent way of people motivating through their vehicles. Um, until, you know, now here we are again, looking at electricity in a, in a big way. But it's an amazing little circle that you get to see when, as soon as you get off the elevator or the escalator. Well, let's curve back around to the left side of the escalator and see what else we find. There's something over here now saying 1900, so we've we've time-traveled again, but this time two years into the future, and a wheel that spins around. But is that an electric motor actually built into the wheel? Exactly. It's a hub motor. So one of the earliest ways of, let's say, even though these cars weigh five, 6,000 pounds, um, as a way of reducing weight in, and, and making things simple. And instead of having all these components, you had your electric motor inside your wheel, which also acted as a brake. So there's all these different things that we're, that we're looking at now. Um, here it is, you know, 120 years ago. I remember um, my dad went to a Michelin-sponsored green eco-friendly sort of uh, conference in China in 2008 and that was one of the revolutionary ideas that they had come up with so here we see 108 years prior Dr. Porsche was working on it yeah it's 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 really time travel and um shows in some ways that there aren't really any new ideas um, it's just a matter of how you reinvent what already was thought of a long time ago for whatever reason didn't stick uh, but you know here it is and the way we do the new Taycan even has very similar, certainly in theory, if not actual design, of how it works. Yeah. So we turn the corner, we walk away from the electric engine in a wheel, and all of a sudden there's this huge six-cylinder engine that looks like the size of, well, a camping tent, in fairness. I think you could find shelter under there. Then what looks like an old Cruella de Vil car, and then an old 
what what looks like it would have run the Indy 500 style of a car with much smaller wheels. Clearly, these are not Porsches because Porsche doesn't exist yet as a company. But this tells the story a little bit more about the man behind the company. For sure. Uh, Dr. Porsche was a very interesting, very smart, even brilliant engineer um, from the late 1800s through the early 1900s. And you can see his mind at work as you walk through the different display, walk past the different displays here at the beginning of the exhibit. The Corella Deville looking car, also known as the Bergmeister, the race car known as the Sasha, some of these names that still resonate with us today for drivers, but obviously you picked your driver lineup based on these old cars that Porsche, Dr. Porsche named so many years ago. Of course. I mean, yeah. there's no other explanation for it. So no. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'll be sure to tell you that a little bit later. Um, But as we progress forward, we start to see more influence of Dr. Porsche, the engineering mind and what he created. There's a car here that's in what's almost like a polish steel. It's a a very refined metal. And it reminds me a lot of a car that we saw in the Mercedes Museum last year, the coolest thing in the Mercedes Museum, for my opinion, which was created by Dr. Porsche. The T80, yes. So um, you can definitely see see where his mind was going again and if you look at his history he worked for a number of car companies before starting his own engineering firm in the early 1930s and uh, one of them was that t80 that he worked in worked on with in collaboration with mercedes-benz um, and what we're looking at here is a hand-formed aluminum buck if you will of the types what is now known as a type 64 um, from the late 30s 1938 or so it's uh the Volkswagen Beetle is the next thing that we'll get to, um, but they are definitely tied together, and one came from the origins of the other, if you will. Well, you can see it in the body shape, because even though this isn't a car necessarily, it's got the rounded back, it's got the rounded haunches, even the window frame cutouts, they are very reminiscent of what we see in what we affectionately call the Beetle, because it's effectively the grandfather of the Beetle, isn't it? That's a great, well, I would say it's a cousin to the Beetle, Hmm. um, but the grandfather to everything else that came after this in the Porsche world. So the DNA is definitely there. If you look at uh, Comenda's design, the low hood obviously without an engine in the front the engine in the back you can have the low hood with the tall fenders all that carries over through the 911 and and boxers and caimans of today and, and panameras and cayennes too um but with the beetle it's it's basically uh side by side design and done at the same time and side by side in the museum so let's walk over and take a look at this beetle because 1950s this one it's a very different looking shaped nose than the ones that we see on the streets now the hood is so far elevated above the headlight haunches that it's the reverse nowadays in the design but you could put this next to a modern beetle and tell that one came from the other oh you know exactly what it is and you know it's kind of like the way the porsche design continues you see a porsche from the mid 50s and you see a porsche today you know they're related and they're very close to one another it's the same thing even extending out now from where in some ways it all began from the Beetle, um, which was designed in the early to mid-1930s. And I seem to remember that there were inscriptions on the glass, yep, secret, that that's a company name that I still have seen on cars today. There's rubber side rails on the the side of this car. I mean, this was clearly designed as a purposeful machine, but a well-thought-out one. Am I right in saying that he would have driven something like this too? Oh, absolutely. So one of his... design theories was, and you look at some of the Sasha, for example, that was from 19, we see 1922, 1923, mm-hmm. is um, power to weight, uh, lightweight, uh, very efficient, um, and something that, you know, from one of the edicts from the mid-30s of, let's say, the higher end of uh, Germany was uh, the people's car, and it was designed to be um, something that everybody could afford. And something that everyone could drive, too. Not something that was particularly complex to pilot. This was, you could learn how to drive it and teach just about anyone. And without a doubt, and also from there it goes to um, multiple purpose. So it could be used for everything, even though it wasn't supposed to be allowed at the time, for even military purposes that could expand out on the air-cooled rear engine design. It had multitude of purposes. The next car in front of it uh, has 1947 listed next to it. So we are jumping around in, in time a little bit. But I remember this car from when we came through last year because it doesn't look like anything else in the museum. It looks like an old style Formula One machine. Even though it never raced in Formula One, it's got the big brakes on it. It's got the spoke wheels that 
I'm going to say this quietly because of where we are, that I always associate with Ferraris, but uh, it's, it's such a neat looking race car. The Porsche Type 360, Sistilia? Sistilia. What? Why was this built? What was the purpose of it? So the purpose of this one is, uh, as many things here, is quite interesting in that um, it was built to generate funds. It was built for an Italian family to generate funds to get Dr. Porsche and Dr. Pieck um, basically out of uh, war prison uh, from France. After the war, they were arrested. Um, they were never charged. They were never convicted. They were never charges brought against them, but they were held um, for ransom. And um, you can understand for sure uh, from the time period and, and what had happened, you know, previous 10, 15 years, uh, some hard feelings. Yeah. But, um, but that was the ransom. It was a million uh, Deutschmarks. And that's what the Porsche engineering firm charged for the car. And that was what was enough to get them out of prison. Jeez. So this is one of a kind then. This was built just as a please let me out now. I will build you a fantastic car, but let me go. Yep. And um, the car was run in various places. Uh, didn't compete in Formula One, but it was definitely a Grand Prix car. Um, and that was the purpose of it. And if you look at everything, you know, it's easy to see and say while we're looking at it. But um, it's an amazing design way ahead of its time and things that just didn't exist at that point, you know, two years after the end of the war. Yeah, it's got almost like the shark fin behind the driver that, that sort of peters away. And it's not necessarily a long car. But by all means, it's shorter than the modern Formula One cars. But this machine, it's just so spectacular to stare at because you can see the shape of Porsche just very subtly running throughout this car. It's still, yeah, it's still there. So you have, um, again, hand-formed aluminum body panels and um, and just the the layout of the car the Porsche engineering firm was a pretty small company um, probably 25 30 employees at its biggest before the war and then they continued after the war and you're looking at um, the design mentality of the Volkswagen and the type 64 and certainly the 56 and everything that comes afterwards and here's number one the 356 Roadster um, this one last year was the first thing we saw when we got off the time-traveling escalator. It's moved a little bit further around the corner. It's now in its appropriate time slot because we've reached 1948. This car is special beyond any sort of meeting that we could give it, talking about it for five minutes. But what's the one thing about this car that just makes you smile every time you see it? Um, there's a lot of things. So the first one is obviously being Porsche number one. The very first Porsche, when Porsche became a car company, uh, it's mid-engine, not rear-engine like Porsche number two and everything. 356 afterwards was a rear-engine design. This was a mid-engine design. The fact that it was built in Gamond, Austria, it was hammered out, another case of hammered out aluminum. Um, it's just a unique piece. It's had a couple things over the years that have changed a little bit about it. Um, simply, it was sold. It was raced when it was first built. We won a couple hill climbs. We sold it. Uh, a few years later, we brought it back to be part of the Porsche family again um, so it's not exactly as was hammered out in 1947 but it's a um, it's the very first Porsche that was registered for road use this is what I think of when I think of a classic Porsche silver body shape no hint even of a roof the red leather interior you've got red on the dashboard the nice big white steering wheel but it hasn't always looked like this and uh, at one point suffered a little bit of damage that necessitated a bit of rehab it had an unfortunate incident in 1998. Um, it was heading for the 50th anniversary of Porsche. That was also the 50th anniversary at, at uh, Laguna Seca during Monterey uh, Car Week, during the Historics. Um, and um, it got a little bit of damage from one airplane to another in Chicago as it was being transferred. And unfortunately, it didn't make the celebration. It had to come back home to for a little uh, buff and polish. One airplane from another. It decided to go skydiving. It did. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I don't want to see that insurance uh, invoice. Yeah. Oops. Sorry, Dad. I brought it home in a slightly different condition. But this car, it sits here and it means so much for so many people. It, it almost feels like it should be the first thing that we see when we get off the escalator. For a long time it was, um, but when you start looking back at the history of Porsche in totality, then it moves to, let's say, its rightful place, as you mentioned, as we walk through. Um, but as far as um, the car company itself, this is where it all begins. So what comes next? Well, the rest of Porsche. You're listening to a special program from Radio Show Limited. Stay tuned for more. Inside.
we got past the streetcars of the early days and found another race car, 1961 this time. So we've time traveled again a little bit more forward. Porsche 718 WRS Spider race car. We're, we're finally back in our vein of comfort. But this thing, it wasn't here last year. Um, Lamal winner? Hill climb winner? Uh, I'm seeing World Endurance Trophy in 1962. This car's pretty much done it all. It was a one-off that did many different things. Um, it did hill climbs. I just mentioned it did hill climbs. It ran at Le Mans. It won class at Le Mans. It won hill climbs. Um, has a flat eight-cylinder engine that makes beautiful noises. Um, it really is a, a, a fun car. And um, the mechanics of the day were affectionately referred to it as the grandmother of the gross motor um, because it did so many things and lasted in the Porsche lineup for so long. Um, but it is one of one. So there's no there's nothing else so this one was the only one built the only one built and campaigned and and lasted a long time and thankfully it never left the porsche collection so i'm I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that because it competed in so many different things normally you say that about a series of cars not just a single chassis that in itself makes this thing invaluable it's crazy right so it started with the 550, if you will. Um, it's a development of that, 550 to 718s and RSKs, and, and this is kind of the next step of a 718 RSK in the early 1960s, um, where 550s and RSKs certainly did hill climbs, certainly ran at Le Mans, certainly ran in World Championship and makes and all the other things. Um, but to have all that kind of knowledge wind up in one vehicle is pretty special in and of itself. It's, it looks like um, the back hatch would almost pop open backwards like a Ford GT sort of a style car, even though I'm sure it doesn't. It just lifts off. Just lifts yeah, off. Straight off, lift off. Just smart Porsche design, but it, it's got that sort of aggressiveness, the, the look to it, like it can go out there and win anything overall, and I, I guess it pretty much did. For the time period, it did, um, certainly in class. It yeah. wasn't an overall type car. It wasn't a prototype in that sense, um, but it has a, certainly a big trophy case of uh, class victors. So cool. If we turn around behind it, if there's a car that's not a car, that it, it's just a, what is it, a fiberglass shell sure. of a race car that is held up in the air by springs. So you can actually see the tension put on the springs to be able to tell how light it is. Now, is this the start of a new revelation, a new age of Porsche? So the 904 was the first uh Porsche street slash race car that was fiberglass that moved away from the aluminum and the 908 continues that and that's what we're looking at here at the lightweight construction of the body of fiberglass. This also comes back to Dr. Porsche's relationship with airplanes because we saw that when we first walked in we were looking at the ginormous engine in and of itself they said that was developed for aeronautics which he received a doctorate in. This is more of his airplane based knowledge isn't it? Now we get into um Ground, nah, not quite ground effects yet, but we certainly get into aerodynamics, uh, more so than the early cars that were just small and sleek and uh, provided a small frontal area. Now we're getting into more efficient use of air uh, as it flows over the body to help with things like downforce, and, and certainly that's a story as we continue past here. But before we get to the fast stuff, the light stuff, the stuff that won more races than we can even count, there's a car that, well calling it a car wouldn't be fair there's there's a truck um and and a tractor and i'm not exaggerating that also is an important part of porsche history that a lot of people have heard of the the tractor so we'll get to that one but the truck in itself that's a little bit special so even during the war uh porsche uh designed and built tanks and then also other things from there based off as we talked earlier the air cooled (laughs) chassis if you will the air cooled engine and the chassis that goes with it uh swimming wagons for example and other things so that's an extension in the 50s of them building to stay alive as a car company they built many different things and certainly the tractor um you know they got the name got leased out there many imported to the united states there are certainly many still um alive if you will in europe and um there's a whole club and collection and, and people are quite excited still about the porsche tractors pretty wild to think that there could be a farmer somewhere in Europe, maybe Eastern Europe, that has a Porsche tractor and doesn't know Porsche is anything but a tractor. Uh, probably so. And um, there's still a lot that are still used, um, mm-hmm. not just in collections or it's become a thing. Yeah. Um, after Rensport, we had a little uh, tractor race. Um, it has become its own special thing. But, uh, you know, there's still you know, farm implements and um, still used to uh, do work and, you know, people make livings from them. Okay, so we get 
through the tractor. We get through the World War II truck. Uh, we've got a 904 Carrera GTS. It would be wrong to ignore this because it's a street car, but it's a race car. It's one of the last that does both. The 906 was the last, let's say, license plate worthy uh, street slash race car. Um, after that, we had a string that became strictly track only race cars. Um, but the 904, first designed by F.A. Porsche, um, it's kind of a departure, even if you look at the 718 stuff in front of it. Um, again, fiberglass body, um, made it to an aluminum chassis, and uh, it's definitely a turning point in our history. By the time this comes out, the 917 exhibit will have been closed and, and moved on, and the Porsche Museum will be restored to, well, for the first time in a while, a Porsche museum, not dedicated to one Porsche, but to many. Right now, though, the 917 exhibit is the highlight, and there's a wall of accomplishments in terms of magazine articles. 24 Hours of Daytona. Mosport, Le Mans, Monza, Watkins Glen, Osterreich Ring, Silverstone. The names just jump out. Road America. This is a car that's had so much success over its lifetime. But Dave, we're looking at, at number one. We're looking at the original. So there were 25 built to start with to, for homologation purposes for the ACO. And this is the first of those 25. There's a famous photo lined up actually basically a block away from here uh, works one um, of the 25 lined up in the courtyard and the courtyard and that building still exists and it's, it's what we known as know as works one um, but this is the very first of the 25 917001 and um, it has an interesting life it never competed um, it was used for testing it was used for a bunch of different things leading up to um, the first time that they competed um, but shortly after 1970 in the first Le Mans win 50 years ago which is the 50 year display that we're looking at the, um, the car was painted to match the winning 1970 car um, the winner was sold um, so the museum decided that they wanted to have one that represented it wasn't an exact copy but it was the red with the white stripes um, number 23 that the Porsche Museum would bring out for special occasions and what was needed, um, but ultimately it was used as a taxi car, so journalists were given rides in it, it was used for all sorts of different things, some aerodynamic testing that went on with the car after the first round of, um, let's say, victories in 1970 between Daytona, the first one, and, and then a few months later, Le Mans, um, and just this past year and a half, it was restored back to what it would have looked like when it rolled off and one of those 25 cars, so uh, fully operational, the way it looks, the way it operates, everything from the rear spoiler that was activated by suspension, so it had af active aerodynamics that were soon banned, um, <laughs> but and this car was still um, under the rules acceptable. Um, but yeah, another number one. Well, let's walk through a little bit, and it's called the, the colors of speed. So we get to see all these different liveries that the cars wore over the span of the years. Oh yeah, gosh, the, the suspension that activated the rear wing it looks like something almost lego that you could build and put on your car i'm sure it was a bit more complex than that not much. Not, not much more complex but the beautiful white porsche with the slight green on it now there's a spider version that's sitting here the engine compartment on all the 917s the early ones at least they were clear so you could see into the beauty this one just with a giant gaping hole behind the gaping hole where the driver sat and the rest of the car completely flush so this is a special 917 among special 917s in that it's a 16-cylinder. So 917 PA has an elongated chassis to fit the extra cylinders and the length of the engine. Um, it never competed. Um, a couple of the 16-cylinders were blown up on the dyno. Um, and uh, it was determined that a 12-cylinder turbo was a lot more reliable and made a lot more power than the 16-cylinder version. Um, but it's gorgeous, right? Yeah, it's hard not to look at that. But the hard thing is it's white. It, it bears no spectacular livery on it. And unfortunately, the cars that follow it do have some of the legendary liveries. We've got the Golf Porsche. We've got the Martini Racing, the Pink Pig. We'll get to those in a second, though. The cars that we see in front of us, they have personalities in and amongst themselves, let alone the pilots who were brave enough to drive them. And that's what the liveries ultimately... Th 
think did for the cars. Um, obviously not just the Porsches, but it became an era of liveries uh, where before a lot of the cars were just uh, painted in the national colors, whether it be white or silver or red or, or whatnot. So um, looking back, everybody knows, you know, you say golf colored car, whether it be a GT40 or a 917, you know exactly what you're picturing in your yeah. mind when you say that. Uh, certainly the Martini 917, the year before, uh, that same chassis ran as number 25 at Le Mans. And if you remember the movie, um, the white 917 that takes off in the beginning um, disappears with Phil Gelford um, was this car but if you think about it the white with just some red numbers on it nothing like the long tail 917 that we're looking at that's basically the same exact car just with a different paint scheme mm-hmm. and um, that is way more memorable and I think for people that look back on that era remember them by the golf colors the martini colors certainly the pink pig um, it's just you know instant recognition in your brain you certainly 962s take that theme and just run with it even further well and the pink pig is an interesting one it's something i definitely want to hit on because it got so much attention with the retro liveries a couple years back at lamar and then of course that car finding victory with michael christensen kevin astra and lawrence vantour there's so many people who associate the pink pig with winning this car though didn't do very much of that. No, it was fast. Um, it was designed by, um, it was sent out for aerodynamic, uh, let's say, enhancements. It's wider, it's heavier, but it's wider and it's longer than uh, body-wise than any of the other 917s of the time. Um, aerodynamically, it was very successful. Um, it ran into other problems in that it a little had extra weight and the brake system wasn't changed and it ran through the brakes and that kind of caused a problem three-quarters of the way through the the Lamar race, um, and then it was retired um, and, let's say, put to pasture. Uh, <laughs> Nicely for, done. <laughs> for a long time here at the museum. It's an amazing-looking car, um, and if he, let's say, removed the uh, the cuts across it and, and the unique color, um, you would see how much different and, and just how much wider it really is than the other 917s mm-hmm. of the time. Um, so they were on the right path. Um, it just didn't, let's say, they just didn't cross that last T when it came to... Um, making it work um, but it's a fan favorite for all those years and then we brought it back with the Rothman's car at Le Mans and people went nuts just nuts I went nuts I still have a picture of that uh, car on my phone from a couple of years ago and thankfully it did finally put the ghosts to rest by getting the win does that win at Le Mans from two years ago make this car even more special now uh, it didn't hurt, for sure. Um, and if you look at, let's say, things like T-shirt sales and, and hat sales, uh, I was here at the museum um, straight from Le Mans that year, and there were no shirts here to be had. So um, I don't think anybody expected that. And if we look at the current um, iteration of throwback liveries that we have done since this in the Rothmans car, um, certainly cumulating with the Coca-Cola car that we talked about a little earlier, a little earlier that was downstairs. Um, and we did the Mobile One livery. We did Brumos. Um, all of them have been tremendous, tremendously successful in terms of boiling down or simplify it to T-shirt sales and, and sales of merchandise, um, which I think just shows how enthusiastic people are towards the history that comes with not just a cool paint scheme, but what it rep- actually represents. I'm guilty of that, wearing the Coca-Cola t-shirt right now as we walk through the Porsche Museum. I wasn't going to mention that. I, I'm fine. I'll own up to it. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things that once you're a Porsche fan, you're always a Porsche fan, and the swag certainly doesn't hurt either. Greatest racing car in history is a quote that's up on the wall next to one that has more colors on it than I think just about any other race car in this museum. A really good example of how wide these cars are. And the 91730 was... Uh an extension of the let's say the 917s that we looked at from the coupes the 10 was the first spider and then the 30 was the ultimate iteration of the 917 um you know the there's a lot of famous stories and things that go with mark donahue and the penske organization that you know developed the car in conjunction with porsche in early 70s for racing in can-am and then it ran in the interseries um but yes just how wide look how short the wheelbase is on them you know you're talking 12 to 1500 horsepower depending on uh, which setup was, how much boost was put into it, and whose story you believe. Yeah. But um, if you look at some of the records that it set, the power that it had, um, it's just an amazing exclamation point on what the 917 was. 917 lived for a short period of time, didn't have the 10 years that the 962 had, hmm. but um, rules and regulations and fuel economy and all such other things came into play at the time that regulations kind of made them go away. But um, 
yes, it's a it's a heck of an explanation point on what the 917s were and what they could have been if they were allowed to continue to develop. Quite honestly, I could sleep on the rear wing alone. It's that wide, and the engine that sits behind the driver in this beast, it's extraordinary to see in person. You see the pictures of it, and that's one thing. But this just gives you a whole other idea of perspective and size, and the fact that there were men brave enough to drive this car with twelve to 1,500 horsepower. That speaks volumes in itself. Yeah, if you talk to Hurley Haywood about it, um, he'll tell you it just wasn't um, bright enough at the time, perhaps, <laughs> to, uh, to think about what he was doing. But um, his co-driver and, and team owner, Peter Gregg, owned the 91710, the Brumos car, and um, he really had little interest in... Because if you remember at the time, guys went from 300 horsepower 911s, and the next step in a lot of ways was this. There was very little, you know, sure you had the 600 horsepower 917s, but those prototypes were, you know, relatively rare and, and, and few. So you had guys that literally went, as Hurley did, from a 300 horsepower 911 to, you know, 1200 horsepower turbocharged 12 cylinder, you know, 917. And um, it got their attention. Um, and um, it's an amazing, again, the way the 917 ended, I couldn't imagine a better way. You know, the collection here, too, is a great way to see just all this on display. We literally just walked past the only magnesium chassis 917 that won Le Mans 1972, and we didn't even comment on it. So yeah. there's just, it's, it's hard to describe. There's just so much to see, so much to, to be captivated by, and that car in itself is gorgeous to stare at. I can't imagine it would have been easy to create something out of magnesium without developing some horrible disease either, because that's not exactly the safest chemical. No, and um, they didn't, it's obviously a lot lighter even than aluminum, mm. um, but one of the th- things they did with these chassis was they pressurized them and they put a, a pressure gauge on them So for the driver. So if the chassis lost pressure, that means there was a crack someplace, and so yeah, talk about cutting edge technology. Right. Things are obviously a little different, and thankfully, yeah. today. Um, but that's one of the ways, you know, they... Well, not too much different. I mean, you think about the hybrid systems on all these different race cars now, and the drivers needing to see a green light before they're safe to exit the car with the batteries charged, you know. Mm-hmm. So we do take safety for granted. In a lot of ways, yes. Yeah. And uh, there's no question that racing has gotten much safer over the years, but it's still racing, and it's still quite dangerous. And as companies and teams and um, manufacturers continue to push the cutting edge of what's capable and and ultimately you know looking over your shoulder at modern let's say 911s and and other you know sports cars and whatnot um, all of this filters from one place to another and um, it's proven on the racetrack and a lot of the kinks let's say and um, but yes you have a hybrid system in a race car that ultimately winds up in your street car yeah that's so cool Um, one of the other dangers of racing is occasionally winding up on your roof um that happens through aerodynamics in certain cars not necessarily in the way that you're thinking of there is a car on display upside down at the porsche museum it's a car that has a lot of special meaning in particular to me because my dad was privileged enough to drive one at the 24 hours le mans but when you're staring at the cockpit of a 962 and it's upside down and you're just going oh boy the amount of speed that it would take to get to this sort of level where a car can drive on the roof 321.4 kilometers an hour and that was attainable by this race car it's scary but it's also just sort of something wicked to look at well it's um you know a lot of folks would just say or at least the engineers would say it's well it's just air engineering Mm -hmm. right in theory and I don't know of anybody that's actually put this to the test, but uh, the 959, uh, excuse me, the 956 and the 962 um, were the first ground effect Porsche race cars. And not just over the top, but certainly under the bottom and tunnels and different things that, you know, were, were new and more cutting edge technology that was brought forward. So in theory, you take a 962 and you do 300 and 22 miles or 300 kilometers per hour and you could drive on the ceiling um i'm not quite sure i'd want to test that but um a couple guys you know certainly went fast enough to to feel the effects of what something like that can do on a racetrack the two names on the side of this rothman's porsche jxd bell two guys that we know pretty well Uh, they've made names for themselves and you think a lot of that started in a car like this if not this car the two that came together for this, those guys were just amazing, amazing teammates, amazing partners, um, amazing race car drivers, and they worked 
as a sports car racing is as a team of drivers that complemented the team that put the car together and um i think they're about if not the most successful pretty darn close to pairings especially at, at, at le mans yeah which let's face it our calendars start in june they end in june because the racing world revolves around le mans there's more cars around here there's more chassis there's tracks that are listed up on the wall ones that stand out i mean we just walked by watkins Glen, brands hatch uh buenos aires there's just so many tracks that the cars around us have had such success at and ones that are particularly meaningful to us so to see these cars and know that they've won at every track across the entire world that's pretty cool Porsche has, and a little boilerplate on the end of our press releases, claims uh, more than 30,000 race victories. Wow. Um, I w- wouldn't want to be the one that counted them. But, um, and a majority of those come in 911s, but yes. Um, I don't think there's anybody successful when it comes to all sorts of different forms of motorsport. Uh, between We haven't gotten there yet between Perry Dakar and, and off-road, things that we've done, and sports car stuff, and even places uh, IndyCar and, and a little dabble in Formula One here and there. So it's uh, not just a 917 museum or not just a 911 museum. There are amazing things and amazing places that we've done that at. Not all just high downforce, amazing Le Mans winning race cars, though. A lot of differences that we can find. Uh, small Roland small I've been reading a book about him for a while, about yes. his chronicles. Mm-hmm. This is his car sitting in front of us. Very much so. Uh, the 959 was, was a few people's baby, but I think you can certainly attribute um, as much to him as anybody else. And the uh, day of the engineers engineering and then actually going out and racing and driving and doing all themselves. Um, Porsche has a long history of folks like that. Um, so one of the Rothman's cars that we're looking at is a 959 from Perry Dakar. Um, and then sitting right next to it is what would be the 959 or known as the 961 uh, Le Mans. 959. So um, both Rothmans, both, you tell exactly what they are, but um, one's quite a bit higher than the other. Yeah, um, just a little bit. I mean, one of them you could happily sleep under. The other one you could maybe put your foot under and not get it trapped. One a little more successful yeah. than the other two. Um, the 961 at Le Mans with all-wheel drive kind of fit a weird set of standard or rules at the time, so it didn't really get too much developed past um, the entry and it didn't have so much of a happy history there but um, I think the 959 at is is pretty well known as far as the success and the Farrow Rally and some of the other things that it had done. It's very funny to me that the rear wing of the car that ran Le Mans, much higher than the rear wing of the car that ran the Perry Dakar. Early days again of aerodynamics. Um, um, things were certainly learned uh, certainly with the 908s and the 917s and um, just continued with 911s or 911-based cars like the 959. Um, But yes, the nuances were beginning to to be developed. You didn't need quite the same wing going through the sand as you did on the Lamas or at the Mosan. We also blew past a a load, the first turbo, a lot of the earlier body-shaped cars from the, the 60s and 70s and then into the 80s. So we have time traveled once again, but there's just so much still to see. And if memory serves, the trophy room sort of area is up ahead. There's all these awards that are, once again, hung by string. Uh, They aren't trying to tell you how much each award weighs, so that's not the point of this. But just a small glimpse into the success of Porsche. How in the world, with all those victories, would someone be able to sit back and say, this belongs there, this trophy doesn't, this one, yep, I like this one, it's shiny. Uh, Le Mans is the easiest trophy of all to decide that it needs to go in here. But how does everything else earn its place? Probably by how shiny they are or how unique they are, right? Um, (laughs) You look at uh, what's been accomplished. I know there's Sebring trophies in here and there's certainly 24-hour Le Mans trophies in here, but it's a wide selection, a wide collection, and um, a good representation of all the different areas that Porsche competes in and has been successful at. Now, the, the big one in the middle, which is the Le Mans trophy, that's one of the new ones because it's got the the new logo it's got the the circle with the two and then sort of the shadowed out four and then the h um would this one have been from 17 18 maybe maybe um i'm not fully knowledgeable on different trophies and different looks Mm -hmm. over the years but if you look at the names that are imprinted on them um, that's you know where i tend to go more with not only my knowledge but my respect um, for the different folks that that 
these don't happen by accident and it certainly doesn't happen by only by car loan or, or even by driver loan it back to the team thing and um, a whole lot of time money effort and passion goes into earning just one trophy much less what we're looking at here so um, I don't tend to get hung up on them individually but certainly as a collection it's just almost mind-boggling there is one in here that I will get hung up on individually the 1998 Lamar winning trophy very small but it speaks volumes and it's not even toward the front it's more toward the back that was the last overall Le Mans victory for Porsche before Porsche's return with the 919. And the fact that it's just one of probably 100 trophies in here, it doesn't have a big spotlight on it, that tells you enough about Porsche's accomplishments and the trophies sitting before us. But there's still more cars to look at, so we will continue on down the path and uh, inform you of some more interesting finds, because there are many. And not to correct you, but just to remind that we never really left Le Mans. It's just the return in the prototype class. Yeah. Um, it's a little sticking point for me, but um, we certainly have a certain amount of success from the GT side of things oh, yeah. from 98 through uh, 2014 when, when the return happened. It was more of a marketing message than anything else. Um, and it came back in a big way, obviously, after 14, but 15, 16, 17 wins. Um, but yeah, that's one little thing that I like to yeah. Sticks in my head. No, thank you. I, I do appreciate that, too. There's a car here, a 911 Turbo 3.3 Coupe. It's blue. It's not Miami blue. People know how much I'm obsessed with Miami blue. But this car, built in 1990, it goes to show you how little change there has been through turbos throughout the year. Because it not only harkens back to the cars we saw at the beginning, but the cars that we still see on the street today. Yes, and um, we're about to celebrate an anniversary of 911 turbos uh, with the next generation that will be along shortly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, the amazing part of, I think, Porsche DNA from the very beginning where we started through today is that um, it's easy to say that Porsche designers are the laziest. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's one of the most difficult jobs to keep aerodynamics and keep safety standards and keep the car looking like a recognizable Porsche. Um, but what we're looking at here basically the holy grail in a lot of people's minds uh 993 turbos are just great there isn't much left to be said after you just say that yeah people might call the designers lazy i would say if it ain't broke don't fix it so there's both sides of the mentality that still plays true in front of this car is a boxster and the boxster looks like a boxster but the taillights don't because this was one of the first Boxsters. It was. It was the first Boxster. So it's the Boxster prototype. It was the show car from Detroit when the car was announced. Um, and then the production car came along two or three years later. Um, it's amazing to see just how simple the car was, certainly from the first concept, how clean and, and, and just well-designed it was. And that design also still lives today. Um, sure, it's a little bit bigger and a little bit wider, and there are a lot of safety things that come along that help dictate how cars look. But the... You look at it, it's a Boxster. You look at the new one, it's a Boxster. It would be wrong to skip this car because 2019 has been the year of the captain, Mr. Penske. So the Penske Porsche RS Spider that ran with the DHL livery on the side, ALMS, I remember this thing running back in 2008. Uh, the St. Pete round I got to go to, that's where I first met Ramon, and Timo, and uh, Plongi. And it was a good car, but it's one that I don't think it's moved from the museum since we were here last year. I think it's still in the exact same parking spot. This car has earned a permanent spot in this exhibition. It's one of the cars that um, probably hasn't moved over the year since we were here last year. Um, it's, uh, again, the end, 2008 was the end of, for the most part, it continued on with Muscle Milk and a few other independents and um, certainly Dyson. But the... Um, RS Spiders were a very special time for a lot of people. Um, it's when I came into Porsche in-house for the first time as well from, from the agency side, so it has a little special part or place in my heart too. Um, I was at Laguna Seca in 05 when they ran their first shakedown race at the end of the season, when they ended the season um, in California. So, um, yes, to see the development from the end of 05 to where it wound up three years later or three years and one race later with three championships and from a team side and from a driver's side... Um, quite special 
this car was one, it was in a different class. It was in the P2 category, and yet it was racing against and beating the P1 Audi diesels at the same time, a very nimble race car. But it stands out just because everything else that we've seen so far in the museum, nothing has looked quite like it. Nothing looks as modern race car as this. And, and this car in itself, by the way, now 12 years old. Another turning point, um, for sure. Um, it was designed when the P2 rules were put in place to, uh, for a lighter, less horsepower car, a little more efficient, to go against the full-blown prototypes. So there was supposed to be a straight-up battle. Um, our friends at Audi got a little upset after 2007, after the 8 of 12, um, and the rules changed around. The BOP, if you will, at the time changed around a little bit to put the cars back in their place, or at least the P2 place, and, and took that away. Uh, but yes, the... Um, it was a different time, and to see uh, the David versus Goliath thing against hard to consider Porsche the David in certain circumstances <laughs> sometimes. But um, but yes, it was designed to be um, specifically for the rules in P2, uh, looking for overall wins, and the car was amazingly successful at it, especially in 2007. How very Porsche. Lighter to get more wins, lighter and more power than the, the bigger cars. A lot of things are stay consistent, for yeah. sure. Um, the approach, the rule book reading, if you will, there's a lot of things that um, are consistent from, from where we started to even what we see on the track today. We know we've gotten to the important part of the exhibit when the cars are on very slow rotating turnstiles. Uh, one of the cars that stands out, orange, gray, and white for this car because all of the press releases when it came out they had the pictures on it they had the corresponding colors but the hybrid this this changed things dave uh beginning of of something we call porsche intelligent performance the um 2010 911 gt3 hybrid um it uses the Kerr system so not a battery to store uh power but uh flywheel spinning at about 40,000 RPM, and uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be sitting next to it. Not only is it quite loud, but you wouldn't want that thing to come apart. Yeah. Um, but um, it was um, it really touched off a lot of different things, and back to the streetcar versus race car side or, or how they kind of run parallel to each other, um, a lot of things that were learned from the hybrid system, things like regenerative braking and how to store power and how to actually, actually use that power efficiently, um, translated directly into the Cayenne and Panamera hybrids that came shortly thereafter. And you can draw a direct, not even a dotted line, but a direct line from this car to the Taycan now. Gosh, and sitting next to it, uh, 911, that doesn't look like a modern 911. I mean, it does, but it, it doesn't look like an RSR version. Was that a cup version? That's a cup version, yes. Uh, with the paint scheme of the intelligent performance, where you had to be at 10,000 feet to actually figure out what it was trying to say, but yes. Um, that's a, the next step. There's a Cayman GT4 Club Sport behind it, and then something that you alluded to a little earlier, the Pink Pig uh, RSR from Le Mans, the winner, with all the Le Mans dirt still on it. Gotta go see that, because that car means so much it it was a victory that was determined mostly by the safety cars and and where they fell and it gave this car a nice cushion or fairly early on in the race but you still have to make it through to win Le Mans you can't just say oh well I've I've got a minute and a half lead after the first four hours I'm, I'm gonna win this thing you you have to make it through and that's even more of a nerve-wracking testament to the three drivers all the dirt as you said still on it the scuff marks still in the right place even the most recent car to come out of Le Mans, the, GTL, the GTE Pro class with a victory. Porsche is a, a company that's used to winning that category. It, it's gotten even more competitive, though. And it was quite a few years in between wins, four or five years, wasn't it? It was a long time. And um, it's the safety car is still a conversation. It's a much longer conversation that we could have here. But um, where that falls and, and the zones and whatnot and, you know, I don't think anybody likes to see, you know, what was it, three hours into the race when that happened? And yeah. and then uh, you can't call it boring from there because certainly anything can still happen beyond that. Um, but when you look at it in hindsight, um, it wasn't as close and competitive as it could have been. And and it would have been if that wasn't called. Um, I, between this and the Rothmans car, they were certainly leading the field and leading the class. Um, but I think everybody would like to see not a minute and a half gap for the full 24 hours. That's... I don't think the outcome would have been much different, but certainly you put cars side by side instead of giving them a gap and strategies change and approaches change and side-by-side yeah. uh, -side competition changes. So um, anything can happen. And um, 
even last year, same thing. You get a safety car early on, and it's a shame that it affects the outcome 24, you know, 20 hours later. I would almost say it's worse to have a comfortable lead at Le Mans because that's when you're expecting something to go wrong. And in going over to interview James Collado with two hours to go, when he finally did have a comfortable gap in the Ferrari this year, he looked more nervous than I've ever seen him in his entire life. So I can't imagine what it would have been like for these three drivers, for Christian Sinestra and Vantor, to have a lead for that long. I can't imagine any of them slept at all. Oh, I'm sure not. And then, um, you know, in, in recent history, you know, even after the race is over, you still have to wait for scrutineering and engineering and figure out who won and maybe who didn't and who gets a penalty and who doesn't. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the race there in France is always interesting. And um, it seems so even more these days when it comes to uh, rules, regulations, and, and our French friends. We started off this program by mentioning the Coca-Cola Porsche that's sitting downstairs waiting to earn its spot on display. It, it's already done the hard work. It's already got the championship. It would be very cool, and I'm saying this with a big smile on my face because I have no idea if it would happen, if this car and the Coca-Cola car would end up on these turnstiles side by side and Larry just sort of standing permanently in the middle going, yep, both mine, both mine. <laughs> well, we know people, so we can have a conversation yeah. before we leave here today. Perfect. Yeah, yeah let's get on that. Sure. Let's give it a little bit of diesel noise. Sound of a uh, tractor by this, the engine noise. Let's see, RS Spider. Another one of these cool features of the museum. Being able to play with all the buttons and make all the noises. Ooh, Panamera GTS. That's a, that's a good like sound. A Nothing like a V8. It's such a, an auditory experience, the Porsche Museum, that there's all these different sections. You can play with all the race cars, make all the noises. 977, Porsche 936. See what first button does. Uh, let's see. Throttle control, accelerate. That's neat. Too many things to play with in this section. Too many cars to see. And a big screen that changes too, so you can see what differences you're making. Oh, here we go. There is a gas pedal on the floor. There's a tachometer that tells you the RPM. And whichever car you choose, of course, I've gone for the 911 GT3 RS. Just because it's one of our favorites. The background on your phone matches the 911 2.0 coupe. So Dave's going to press the gas pedal on that one. There's just too much fun. It turns us into little kids when we walk through this section of the museum. We're up at the top now, the, the roof of the museum, and there's still more cars to find up here. There's more sounds to play with. But now we're getting into some of the cars that they resonate because they're the ones that I've grown up seeing on the street. We've got a Turbo, a Turbo S, a Carrera, a C4S, a GT3 RS. This is where the fun begins. In a lot of ways, certainly from the streetcar side. Um, you look at early 911s from... Actually, we didn't see Sally Carrera. I'm looking at a 996 Carrera, but realized that we didn't see Sally here this trip. Um, and right up to the millionth 911 that was uh, built. So um, there's no, again, no shortage of amazing things to blow your mind. The one millionth Carrera that rolled off the line. Just think about that for a second. One million of these cars built by hand by machine created a million of them out in the world this one came off the line in 2017 so we've had almost two well let's call it three years worth of cars being built since then that means that there have been a million people who have enjoyed driving a Carrera driving a Porsche plus just a 911 uh, 911 alone the one millionth car in green interesting color that they decided to go with but it, it has a very Porsche meaning to it as well. So Irish green um, is or was the favorite color of Dr. Porsche so uh, many of the special 911s or special Porsches that were built specifically for him or for the collection are done in tribute in the same color for him. And 
of those 1 million Porsches, there's a staggering amount that are still on the road today. Yeah, so 70% of Porsches are still on the road. So if you think about just how long we've been around and, and how many we've done since 1948 to have that kind of percentage still out there, um, I think in my own mind that's you see a lot of Porsches, but and you think we only sell about 55,000 cars a year in the United States, uh, just under 60 last year. So we've been increasing, I think this is our ninth year in a row that we've steadily increased sales, but still. 60,000 hardly touches the 16 million or so that are sold at new cars every year. So yeah. I think because a lot of them are still on the road and they tend to, as we talked earlier, from a design standpoint, they look familiar and similar and, and you know, kind of like what you expect. Yeah. Um, it's easy to see a 10-year-old car and think it's a brand new car and uh, give you more impression that they're more out there than maybe they really are. That's a very good point. Um, we come around the corner, away from the millionth car, to a car that is completely one of its own. Now, many of them raced at Le Mans. The 919 was very successful in its time. Its worst Le Mans was actually the first one in which it was leading when things went wrong Sunday morning. I still remember both those cars coming into the garage and just feeling the surge of disappointment. Um, But this version that's in front of us, it belongs in the museum because it is a record-breaking car. It broke records at Spa, at the Nürburgring. Um, it's the 919 Evo, so a uh, bit lighter. What you can do when uh, you're not constrained by the rules. Uh, lost headlights and things like that. It's a little lower in ride height. Uh, the restrictions from uh, energy use were removed, so uh, all power is available from the batteries that weren't available before. Cool. Um, so, um, yes, this broke um, the Nürburgring record that had lasted for a long time. Um, with the 956 and uh, Mr. Stefan Beloff um, from a long time ago um, with a sub six minute time. It's just an amazing thing to see. I was there when it happened, and yeah, Timo Bernhardt knows the ring pretty well um, and was friends with the family of Mr. Beloff. So it was all done in a, in a let's say, in a Porsche way, um, not in a disrespectful way. Um, and I'm glad to see Porsche retain the record. I expect it to be broken again, probably. A shorter period of time than it took this time around um, but the car this one in particular is um, an amazing piece of engineering in a place that's full of amazing engineering and it's sitting up by itself because it is in a league of its own there's another area of the museum that we haven't gotten to next that we'll go to next where it's the wave of the future but this was the last of a certain kind of race car that we've seen from from Porsche for the time being at least this is the record breaker the one that will stand in the books as getting the three Le Mans wins but it's it's sort of sad to see it as the end of a period of greatness for sure and you know not only the Le Mans wins but certainly the WC championships the three years of championships that it won too um it's funny to overlook those for Le Mans, um, but we tend to do that. Um, Le Mans is such a special place. The, um, but yes, this will definitely be the representation of what the 919 was for those four years. Uh, the first year, I think it's, it's not unfair to say the car wasn't quite ready um, in many different ways, and a lot of lessons learned coming back in the prototype class for, for so long, um, but um, we kind of got our things together for the 15 season, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. How very Porsche for the museum to come full circle. We started off with an electric car, not necessarily a Porsche because Porsche wasn't a thing yet, but we finish with the Taycan Turbo S on display here proudly as the last thing that you would expect to see from the museum. Electric car, but Dave, this this car looks so much different than the Mission E car that we started out with a couple years ago. The back orders on this car are off the charts. So many people want them. How is there one just sitting in the museum? How is this a thing? I thought it surely would have been in someone's driveway. Well, the good news is this is one of the prototypes, so mm-hmm. it's not quite ready for sale. Um, we have over 20,000 uh, serious hand raisers, is probably a good way to put it, uh, of interest for the car, way more than production can handle, certainly for the first couple of years. Um, and depends on how you look at the car. Some ways it's very similar to the Mission E, um, not just the white paint, but um, yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly the headlights and the taillights, and there's a lot of things that carried over, but um, when you get from a concept and a production to reality, things like uh, side mirrors and things like ride height, and things, there are things that just have to, for safety reasons and for others that just don't make it from a design sketch to what goes in your driveway. Um, I'm pretty happy with how close this actually was um, from other things that we've seen in the past that 
that weren't that close. To me, this is a much better uh, application of that. Um, but ultimately, it's the beginning of another era for, for Porsche and, and maybe for you know automotive world in general. It's got an interesting roof line. There's almost a cave in the middle of the roof. That I'm sure it's an aerodynamic issue that they put it there. It's something to try and make it a little bit more slippery through the air. The wheels, though, stick out as being different. The original design, it almost had these fans or these rotor blades that were designed to, to do extra brake cooling. I guess maybe they don't need it anymore because they're a lot more traditional-looking wheels now. Well, there are options. So Porsche is known for their options. Um, one of the wheel options for the Taycan will be those fan wheels. There's like a 3 or 4% improvement in aerodynamics, not for the overall car, but from the wheel side of things yeah. with those wheels. So um, styling-wise, maybe you're into it or not, um, but there are things that do work um, that started on 935s yeah. and 961s and, and one other than 936s for sure. So, yeah, and then just carry on so there was something to it then there's still something to it now um but sometimes design wins out over what aerodynamically is possible and these days you can make it an option there have been a lot of hand raisers as you say i know that the wait list at champion is already more than they expect to sell within the next couple of years so there's so many people who want to get a piece of this not because it's an electric car but because it is a porsche and because it is the next step of the company the what we've seen in the museum today this fits. This makes sense with the Porsche family. A lot of people have, and certainly from my company side of things, like to say that it's a Porsche, right? It needs to be a Porsche. It rides like a Porsche, drives like a Porsche, has characteristics and traits like a Porsche. Um, it's easy to put it here at the museum because obviously it's a Porsche, so you put it at the museum. But no, it does fit. And um, I've had the, the honor of actually spending some time in one as we've moved forward with the introduction, and it's all Porsche, um, except with probably with the exception being sound right yeah. and that's something that all electric cars are going to have to deal with um there's some sound from the outside now for uh safety reasons uh just can have electric cars sneaking up on people that might not be able to see so well surprise <laughs> so um so there is that but there are options also for how the car will sound um for the customer when they when they actually purchase the car um and we're close to starting delivery and um so you can see a lot of the stuff develop here um this is the very beginning even though in some ways we started let's say an hour ago when we walked into the museum with electric um in a lot of ways this is the beginning of let's say the electric period of automobiles so hang on a second. The customer has a choice with the sound. So the bright green GT3 RS that is right behind me that I can't stop drilling over, surprise, surprise, um, I can make the Taycan sound like that. Not exactly, but, you know, who knows what's going to come in the future. When you're talking things digitally, um, probably anything is, is possible. And uh, not sure it will be exactly fit, but when you look at the fact that this is the hardest or quickest accelerating portion that it, there has been to sell date, including the GT3 RS that's behind you. Um, what can come from that sound is relatively minor when, when you look at the rest of the engineering and things that are involved. And um, some people can say digital can be a way of, let's say, um, a little too easy or maybe even cheating some, mm. some topics. But um, I think the, uh, the future is wide open. Well, as you can hear from the background noise, there's more people around us right now than have been at any other point during this museum tour. Because people are so drawn into this, there's a simulator set up just behind you. There's cars that you can sit in so you can feel what it's like to be behind the wheel of a Porsche. You can get a real idea for the Porsche experience. Dave, thank you very much for this museum tour. This has just been a pleasure. Oh, thank you very much. And now, I think it's time for a little trip to the gift shop. Bye-bye. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.